Well, I hope everyone is doing well tonight, and I have to apologize. Um, I don't know that there are enough uh, papers to go around. I think there might be still one or two up here on the, um, on the offering plate. You're invited to slip up there and grab one if you would like uh, and follow along tonight. I do know that um, – sure, yeah. I do know that uh, I will tell you – oh, my goodness – This is real life. Okay. Come on through. Sure. The other day I was in the office and I was noticing, hey, I don't, you know, we're, we're printing some bulletins now and I don't know when we're going to run out of toner, but it might be a good idea to order some. So I ordered some and then uh, about uh, an hour or two later I was printing something and it said, hey, you're out of toner. So um, thankfully in God's providence we had some on the way. But um, as we look to Ezra and Nehemiah tonight, this will be our last. Um, this will be our last lesson in Ezra only, and we're looking at a theme more than we are a particular text in in Ezra. I do have the different Bible passages that we will be considering. I have them mostly written out. Uh, there are a couple, perhaps, that are not just completely. On there, on the third page, we'll have to look at a couple. But um, we're, we're considering this idea of the presence of God. I've entitled it God with us or the presence of God, the temple. Of course, we know that one of the most important things, one of the main things that they were doing there in Ezra is rebuilding the foundation of the temple. And then we remember that when they re- rebuilt the foundation of the temple, the old men, it said the old men wept. Okay, very kind of powerful Seen what's happening there. The old men who were there, who remembered the old temple. They were old enough to have remembered the old temple in all of its glory, David's temple, right? And now they come back, they rebuild it, they, they lay the foundation of the temple, and they see it's nothing like it used to be. At least it's here, right? We're able to be back in God's city. We're able to be back at His place, but it's just nothing. It doesn't even touch the glory of the old temple. And so the old men wept. Uh, so we're going to see kind of some a connection to that in the New Testament tonight. But when we're reading through Ezra and Nehemiah, God tells us things. He does this all in the Old Testament. He tells us things about himself by the way that he deals with his people through events. And so many times in the Old Testament, it doesn't just come out and say what the lesson is supposed to be. Okay? Sometimes we get that, right? But let's, let's think about the book of Judges. When you see the the opening of the book of Judges, it said there was no king in the land and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And then what happens in Judges? That's the rated R portion of the Bible. All manner of bad and evil stuff happens. And then at the end of the book of Judges, it says what? There was no king in the land and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so there's a picture of what you're supposed to gather You're supposed to understand that everything that happens in Judges is an example of what happens when God is out of the picture. When there's no person, there's no king there to kind of tell the people which way to go, and everyone's just doing what is right in their own eyes. Okay, Uh, That's an example of when God makes it a little more clear to us. But when we go to a book like Ephesians this morning, it's very clear what the lesson is supposed to be. 
when we're reading in the Old Testament, it's a little bit harder to pick up on what are we supposed to learn from these stories. But we've seen a few themes. Okay, hopefully we've been able to trace some of these out in Ezra and Nehemiah here. And I've, I've listed them. The power of the Word of God. Okay, remember what happens when the people gather back. We talked about this last week. The people gather back together. They read the Word of God. And what happens? The people repent. They tear their clothes. They stack cloth and ashes, right? And they repent and they, they come together in this big, this, this big um, gathering while it's raining. The Bible says it's raining while they're doing this. And they, they cry out to God uh, after they hear the Word of God. So the Word of God does the work of God. Then the, the hand of God. Remember last week we talked about how the hand of God was on Ezra as he came to, to teach about God's Word and then... It said, uh, in other words, we see this, this picture of when God's hand is on somebody, that's a good thing, typically. It's, it means God's blessing is on them. The importance of obedience. We've seen that, right? The whole picture of being exiled is because of their disobedience. And now they're brought back in and they're told, obey God. Um, God's sovereignty over history and kings. And so we, we know that the governmental rulers that are in power, okay, uh, the, the different ones, Darius is one of them, Nebuchadnezzar was one of them, Cyrus. Different kings treated the people different ways. And so, but no matter who was in charge, God was in control, we said, right? So that's a theme. God is sovereign over whoever is in charge, and he can turn the, the king's heart however he pleases. And then God's faithfulness to his promises. God has always been faithful to his people. We've seen this as well. He takes care of them. He brings them back into the city of Jerusalem, keeps them from danger. God is faithful to his promises. He preserves the people. He doesn't let them be destroyed. Because if God's people are destroyed, then his promises can't come, come true. There won't one day be a Savior, a Jesus, if God lets his people get crushed out by these other nations. And then lastly, God's purposes can't be frustrated by the opposition of men, by the opposition of people. In other words, different times in Ezra and Nehemiah. We're going to see that in Nehemiah also. But some people rise up to try to stop God's people from doing what God has told them to do. And they succeed for a while, but they're never fully successful. It doesn't last. So we see all these themes. But tonight, when we consider what is happening in Ezra and Nehemiah, another huge theme kind of comes to the fore. It, it, it presents itself. What are the people doing? They are returning to rebuild the temple. The temple represents the presence of God. So if you're a blank filler-outer there, the blank there is presence. The temple represents the presence of God. God is a God who desires to be among His people, and He showed this all the way through the history of the Old and New Testaments. God is a God who desires to be with His people. He was with His people in the Garden of Eden. He walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. Uh, he had an unmitigated relationship with them. They could talk face-to-face, -face, as, as difficult as that is to, to imagine or to believe. Um, there was Moses in the burning bush. Okay, God appeared. He wanted to be with His people. He wanted to speak to His people. God met Moses on top of the mountain, gave him the Ten Commandments, gave him the tablets. He spoke to His people. God wants to be with His people and to speak to His people. Then the Israelites... He leads them through a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, the tabernacle. He wants to meet with them in the tabernacle. Then he wants to meet with them in the temple. God wants to be with his people. And so this is why when the people of Israel are exiled, losing the temple, seeing it destroyed is such a crushing, crushing experience to them because it means they can't go to where God is in a sense. It's amazing. Um, but that's why this 
The temple rebuilding is so important to them. So we must ask tonight, what does the rebuilding of the temple do for the people of Israel? And today, in 2020, here in a New Testament church, what does it mean to, to be in the presence of God? What does it mean to look back and see what God was doing with Ezra and Nehemiah and the temple? The first point that we see is that God is faithful to His remnant. I have to talk about what a remnant is. That's a word that many times you, you're familiar with. Uh, sometimes if, you, if you've ever purchased a remnant of cloth or something, or a remnant of leather, or some kind of remnant of a material, it's a leftover portion, right, from the bigger piece. And so the picture is that there's this big, big group called Israel, and then they get whittled down. Because of their disobedience, they go into exile, different things happen, but there's a remnant that's left over. There's a, a faithful people that God preserves, just like He did with Noah, right? There would be a remnant of the people. God judged the world, but He allowed a remnant to survive. The same thing happens with Joseph, right? There's, the, the people are perhaps about to die of a famine, but God preserves His people so that His promises can continue. And then, of course, we see the same thing here. After exile, many died, many didn't come back. But God preserved a remnant. We see that. Uh, there's a passage of Scripture down here. Um, but I need to say this first. A remnant often refers to the line. That's the blank there. It often refers to the line through which God will make His promises of a Savior come true. This is what, what it says in Ezra chapter 9. Um, it says this, But for now, but now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within His holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, and this is in bold, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery. So he talks about leaving us a remnant, preserving his people, and God not forsaking us. This is a very important thing uh, for the people of Israel. We see this also in Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. See, think about this. What happens? How do you get a stump? Something has to have been cut down, right? And that tree that got cut down is a picture of Israel. So God judged Israel, right? He, he humbled them. He brought them. Other nations came in and conquered them. He cut, God allowed the tree to be cut down. But God says, guess what's going to happen after that tree was cut down? A shoot will come up. A shoot will come up, will come forth from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. In other words, the story is not over. Yes, God allowed his people to be judged, but the story's not over. A shoot is going to you can imagine a little sprig of a new tree coming up out of that stump and it ends up being just as big as the old one was or even bigger. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And we see all of this really Edenic uh, language, this language that, that might remind you of Eden or of a new kind of 
everything being made right again. It says, The lion shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion, and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole, uh, over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the on the adder's den. In other words, all this imagery of peace, of what happened in Genesis 3 being reversed, right? Now there's suddenly peace between like a, a baby can play with a cobra and everything ends up going okay and a, and a lion and a lamb can lay down together and be at peace. All of this God is basically saying one day through what happens out of this stump, through the, the sprig that comes up, which I think looks forward to Jesus, right? Because of what Jesus does, peace will be ushered in to the earth again. This is an important theme for us to remember as we enter this time of, of, um, of Christmas, of Advent. Peace on earth. How is peace brought into the earth? Is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It says this in verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain... For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, all right, is picturing forth Jesus, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, and the nations shall inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. So God's going to take care of his people. He's going to take care of the remnant. So, uh, that's the first point. But the second point is this. The remnant doesn't just need to be preserved. They don't need to just be, stay, uh, be kept alive. The remnant needs comfort. They need consolation. In other words, they need the peace of God to come in and do ministry in their hearts. The, the notions, the ideas of comfort and consolation, they, they deal with how God will set everything right for His people once again. The people of Israel experienced slavery, exile, loss, judgment, wilderness, persecution, delay. They experienced all this. They are a people who are aware of their need for God to set things right. But moreover, the people need consolation. In other words, they need a fix. They need a solution because they themselves are sinners. They need some kind of solution for their most basic need. They need their spiritual problems solved, and they need their sinful souls consoled. Isaiah 40 says this, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has ended, her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. In other words, so this, this people of Israel who've come out of so much, need to be comforted. Isaiah 57 says this, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of life that is made, that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways and I will heal him. I will lead him and restore him. And his mourners created, uh, creating the fruit of his lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord. And I will heal him. This, 
these ideas of God making everything right for His people once again. But then number three, how it will happen. And this is where perhaps we need to spend the most of our time. How are the people of God going to have their problems ultimately taken care of? Because honestly, as we look to this temple, the people have returned, right? They've rebuilt the the foundation of the temple. It's not like it used to be. It's a little bit disappointing. And somehow there's this sense that when Ezra closes, that yes, the temple has been rebuilt, but no, the problems aren't ultimately fixed. The people are still having to go to a building to meet with God. And who knows what may happen. It may be taken away from them again. So there's this idea that yes, the temple is here, but this is not where we're headed. This is not our final destination. We need the presence of God among us in a more real and powerful way. We need the presence of God closer to us. So in the Old Testament... The people need consolation for their sins. They need a fix for their sins. They need the presence of God and they need a Savior. The coming of the new temple was a bit of a disappointment. It was built to show them, if you're filling in blanks, it was built to show them a partial consolation. A partial fixing of their problem. Where will the full presence of God come? So in other words, the rebuilding of the temple is almost like it's almost like, you know, I, I liken it to my, to my son. Let's say he's very, very hungry, but we're, it's not time for supper yet. And so we give him a little bit of a snack. That little bit of a snack is good enough to kind of hold you over, but really what it does is it just makes you look even more forward to when you get to enjoy the whole meal, right? So the rebuilding of the temple is almost like this this stopgap measure. It's like, hey, I want you to get prepped for the final solution because it's coming. It's coming. And of course we know that the presence of God comes in full form in Jesus Christ. After 400 years of silence, after the book of Malachi closes, Matthew opens and Jesus comes on to the scene. We see this in Luke chapter 2. A righteous remnant waiting for Israel's consolation. Says this. I want to read a little bit of Bible. This is, of course, the Christmas story. But this is the end of the Christmas story. The the part of the Christmas story that uh, might not get quite as much attention. Says this. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him, Jesus. Let's talk about Mary and Joseph. They brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now I've got a couple of things underlined here. This is the first one. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. So there's this idea of a remnant being left over. You remember how Jesus was received by most of the Jews? Not very favorably. But here's a man who's righteous and devout. And he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. Friends, here's a remnant. Here's a portion. Not all Israel is Israel. It says in Romans. But here's a man. Here's a man 
who's a God-fearing man who knows what to look for. He's righteous and devout, and he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. It says this in verse 26. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when his parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. So imagine Mary and Joseph come into the temple and here's this old man who comes and snatches their baby out of their hands and he starts praising God. Because he's able to see before he dies. He's able to see what God had promised that there would come a Savior after these 400 years of silence. Lord, it says in verse 29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. I think I would have done more than marvel. I think I would have snatched my baby back. But they marvel. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. Of course he would be. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, Of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and prayer day and night, night and day. And coming up from that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So, in other words, you imagine this picture. In Ezra, There are old men who see the temple, the new temple, and they weep because it's not what it's supposed to be. But in Luke, these two old people, just like the old men of Ezra, they're two old people, and they see the true and better temple. They see Jesus himself, the very presence of God. In the Old Testament, the temple was the presence of God. In the New Testament, God God allows his parents to bring the presence of God into the temple. You see how how powerful this is? They see that and they praise God. They praise God because they were able to see the true and better temple, the presence of God. It's a powerful, powerful language. Um, We see, this is where we have to look to a little bit of Bible without it having been uh, written down for us. Let's see. In Isaiah chapter 7, as we, uh, we look to uh, a couple of uh, passages that are going to be very familiar in a couple of uh, weeks as we remember Christmas. Isaiah 7:14 says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And of course we know what Emmanuel means. It means God with us. It means God's presence has come to be among his people. And then in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. 
And of course, in Isaiah 11, there shall come forth from the stump of Jesse, and a brand, uh, uh, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. In other words, the presence of God is coming. How will it come? It will come through God Himself taking on flesh and being among His people. No longer do you have to do the sacrifices in the temple. Why? Because Jesus made one sacrifice, the book of Hebrews says. No longer do you have to go to the temple to be near God because the temple has come to be near you. And then it says something even more powerful in John uh, chapter 14. It says this. John 14, 16. <clears throat> and I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. In the Old Testament, friends, the presence of God is in the temple. The people have to go to the temple. In Luke, the temple goes to the people. And in John, the temple lives inside of the people. So that the Bible can even say that we are the temple of God. Our bodies are the temple of God. So where was the presence of God back then? It was at the temple. Where was the presence of God in the Gospels? It was in the person and work of Jesus. Where is the presence of God today? It is living inside of every person who has become a believer in Jesus Christ. That's where the presence of God is. So, God is always with us. He always has been in one way or another, but now He is with us in a more real way, more real than, than at other times in the Bible. And then one day, we will be with Him. Remember I said a few moments ago, that their rebuilding of the temple was almost just like a wetting their appetite for, for Jesus to come? Well, friends, now the Holy Spirit living in us is wetting our appetites for when we get to be with God in heaven. We're not completely there yet. Yes, the Holy Spirit has come to live inside us, but one day we will be with God in an unmitigated way. No veil in between us and God, just like it was between Adam and Eve and God in the garden of Eden. We're returning to that. We're returning to that for all who believe. In this passage, there is consolation. If you're filling in blanks, I think I've kind of covered a lot of that stuff about Simeon being righteous and devout. I didn't do it in order, which might frustrate some folks. But um, in this passage, there is consolation. The old temple didn't satisfy. The old men wept. In the new temple, Jesus himself will satisfy. And the old people were there to witness it. Um, there, there are themes about the, the true Israel. Who is the true Israel? Of course, um, it says in Romans 9, 6, Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. In other words, being in the right family doesn't make you right with God. Okay? It gives you a leg up. You might be around the temple. You might be able to understand or hear about the things of God. But salvation has always been through faith in Yahweh. Salvation has always come through faith, no matter Old Testament, New Testament. Romans 2.29 says this, But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. In other words, how do you become a true Israelite? By having your heart changed. 
It's true for those who are ethnically Jewish, and it's true for those who are not, uh, who, who are Gentiles, like perhaps many of us. The consolation of the soul of Simeon. Remember, Simeon was in the temple. He was righteous and devout. He was waiting for consolation, and then he got to see it. The consolation that Simeon experienced, it pictures the consolation that's available in Christ. We can all have our sins and our souls consoled by the work of Jesus, by what Jesus does. So, finishing up, in a word, here's what Ezra does. Ezra does us a service by setting us up to see the true and better. Okay? In Ezra, there was a remnant. But in the New Testament, there will be a true and better remnant. Namely, those people who are following Jesus. We're the remnant. We're the ones who are left over. Those who are trusting God now. doesn't matter which family you're in. It doesn't matter which good works you do. The remnant, the true remnant, are those who are by faith believing in Jesus. In Ezra, there was the presence of God. But in the New Testament, there's the true and better presence of God. Jesus came to live among His people, and then He left His Holy Spirit to live inside us. The presence of God is true and better. In Ezra, there was a consolation. In other words, the people got to got to rest. They were finally back in their city. They got to see their temple. There was, there was a period of rest and of thanksgiving to God. But in the New Testament, there's a true and better consolation found in Christ. By faith in Christ, our souls can have rest. In Ezra, God's work was finished for the moment. But in the New Testament, God's word is finished in a true and better way. And how do we know? Because Jesus said it himself, it is finished. God will finish His work. And for those of us who are trusting in Him, for those of us who are believing in Christ, God will finish His work in us. He will not leave us here. He will make us more and more like Jesus. It's painful. It's like pulling roots up out of a garden. Sometimes a lot of dirt comes with it and God has to shake the dirt out and it's painful. But God will finish His work in us and one day He will take us home to be with Him finally in His presence like Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. Friends, this is great news. And it's something, I believe, that can console our hearts tonight to reflect on the gospel, God's faithfulness to His people, and the fact that God is not distant. He is near to His people. He's near to us. Let's pray. God, we thank You that You are near to us. We thank You that You are not far off. Lord, we ask for help. We ask for wisdom. We ask for comfort. We ask for correction where we need it. We ask that You uh, would make Your nearness known to us. We thank you that, that you have promised not to be a God far off. And so, Lord, we confess to you that oftentimes we feel that way. We feel that you are far away. But, Lord, when we believe that, when our hearts kind of tell us or when our, when our broken minds tell us that God is nowhere near, he's, he's way far away... Lord, the witness of the Scriptures is against us when we believe that. The witness of the Scriptures say that you are a God who wants to be near your people. And so, Lord, help us to believe it. Give us grace to believe it. Lord, we pray this in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.